Hi, my name is Rich Brodsky. I'm a pediatric emergency physician and a parent. I know that going to the emergency room with your child can be a scary and confusing experience. I've been there on both sides. That's why I wanted to bring a pep talk to you. Pediatric Emergencies for Parents, a podcast where I talk with experts about problems that bring you to the emergency department with your child. The goal is to make parents and others who take care of kids more informed. And we're doing it one pep talk at a time. Today on Pep Talk, we address one of the most common illnesses that bring a child to the ED, fever. According to a study published in 2020, so we're dealing with pre-pandemic numbers here, every year emergency departments average 2.6 million visits for fever in children under two years old, not including the 180,000 annual visits for children under 90 days. The CDC estimates that from 2016 to 2021, an average of just over or just under 4 million visits a year are for fever for patients under the age of 18. Given this, I figured that our first episode of Pep Talk would address this most common complaint. I sat down with another pediatric emergency physician, Dr. James Lucky, and an infectious disease specialist, Dr. Patricia Whitley-Williams, to have an open and honest conversation about fever in the emergency room. Today's episode focuses on children over three to four months of age. We're going to have a special episode later on about fever in a neonate, which is how we refer to a newborn baby that is less than 90 days old. So please join us for our first episode. I'm sorry if it's a little rough around the edges. Podcasting is a learning process, much like medicine and much like parenting. Quick disclaimer before we get started, Pep Talk is an informational show. Every patient and every situation is different. This is not intended to be direct medical advice. If you have any questions about your child and their health, please call your doctor or seek appropriate medical care. Now, let's turn to my conversation with Dr. Lucky and Dr. Whitley-Williams. Fever is by far the most common symptom that brings worried families in to see us. So today, I have two experts in the field to talk about the basics of fever. And what's going on when our kids hit 103, basically. First, I have Dr. James Lucky. He is a practicing pediatric emergency physician and assistant professor of pediatrics at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. He is the director of pediatric emergency ultrasound. He did his fellowship training in pediatric emergency medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, and his pediatric training over at Jersey Shore University Medical Center, also in New Jersey. So hello, Dr. Lucky. Thanks for being here. Hey, Rich. I'm so glad to be here on your show, and I'm excited to be here for your first episode. Thank okay. you for coming for this little experiment on this first episode. So also with me today, I have Dr. Patricia Whitley-Williams, who is a professor of pediatrics and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Disease at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. She is also the former president of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. She learned about infectious diseases in her fellowship over at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Now, residency at Cincinnati. Thank you. Residency yeah. in pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and did her fellowship at Boston University School of Medicine. 
So other than me switching your places of education, I want to thank you for coming and joining us here. Thank you so much, Rich, for having me. It's been something I've been looking forward to. So this is great because it's one of my favorite topics. I imagine as an infectious disease professor, I'm sure this is something people ask you about a lot. So the situation, you are at home with your child and either it's the middle of the night or they have come home from school with a report that they have had a fever of 103 and you don't know what to do. Tylenol, Motrin are all options, but at this point in time, you're scared because they look ill. Children who have fevers look sick. So you bring them to the pediatric emergency department. Dr. Lucky, do you feel that this is a common situation? Is this what you hear? Rich, it definitely is. And I think the biggest thing that we see is it's either right at the beginning of that fever where they're starting to, to get sick or they wake up in the middle of the night and they're spiking a fever and looking really irritable. Or the, the other side of it that we see a lot of is maybe a child's already been seen by their pediatrician at the beginning, and now they're presenting to us in the emergency department because they're still having fevers, or what we call febrile, a few days later, maybe even a week later. So hmm. those are a lot of common ways we see it. And that's very common to have fevers that last that long. Well, it can be. Most children probably have fever for three to five days, but some of these illnesses can cause fevers that are lasting up to a week. Mm. So there are a lot of myths out there about what a fever is and what a fever can do. What are some of those myths that you've heard? Well, I think the, one of the big common myths is uh, fear that a fever could be damaging to the brain. And I think in the, in the perspective of febrile illness or having fevers because of an infection, the body is creating this fever so that we can try and fight the infection. And it's not the type of fever or elevation in temperature that you have to worry about damage to the brain. It's like a thermostat, right? Your body has a normal temperature that it sets it to around 98.6. When you get sick, that thermostat is being set higher. And there's a limit to what your body can do when it comes to changing your thermostat, the height of that fever isn't going to go high enough that it's going to be dangerous to you from the sense of causing damage to the brain. So that's a great question. I'm going to toss this to you. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also going to go back to Dr. Whitley Williams. How high is too high? I know that when I'm on shift, families come to me and they say it was 103, it was 104. And the most common question they ask me is, how high is too high? When should I be worried? Yeah. So I would say that when you're having temperatures above 103, that's considered a high fever and uh, the body could even go as high as 105. But it's not that it's a temperature that's too high. It's the context of what's causing that temperature to be high. And the majority of the time it is a viral infection. And so we'll see these kids with 104s or 105s. They're coming in with a viral infection and we do our assessment and we evaluate and we discover that's likely it. And Dr. Whitley Williams, I have to ask because I often get asked how high too high is. How high is too high? I would just ditto what James just said. Certainly, fever due to an illness or an infection can get as high as 105, maybe even 105 plus. The types of high temperatures that you see up to maybe 107 
that would occur usually if someone, let's say if a child got locked in an old refrigerator that was sitting outside in the junkyard somewhere, okay, that, that would produce that high of fever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about fevers that, you know, anywhere from 100.6 is what we usually consider a fever, as James said, up to 105. So I, I would agree with him uh, totally. And I think it's important to stress again that fever in itself does not damage the brain, mm, even exactly. at 105. So I think I've heard both of you say something that is quite telling, and that is that fever is a symptom and fever is not a disease itself, either from being locked in a refrigerator or from the viral illnesses, all that kind of stuff. So fever is a part of something else. And so, James, what kind of things do we check for that would be that something else? You mentioned viral illnesses. What would put you in that direction? So fever in the emergency department is one of those things where your history and your physical exam is uh, enough in most cases to figure out what might be the cause of that fever. Uh, there are certain causes of fever which are more dangerous and require other testing. Things like strep throat infections, which require a throat swab, testing for the flu in certain patients that might need or benefit from the use of a medication like Tamiflu to help shorten how long they're sick with the flu. Blood tests when we're concerned that it looks like a more serious infection, like a bloodstream infection. We're always worried about meningitis, which is a brain infection, or what's called myocarditis, which is a heart infection. Most of the time when we're done with our history and physical exam, we have enough information to tell us that we need to do more testing and look for some of these things, or that uh, the child looks well enough that we can continue to watch from home and that they don't require any other testing or hospitalization. On average, just throw out a number there, I'm not going to hold you to it. How many of the patients that we see on an average day in the emergency department do you think truly need emergency care with those sick types of patients that you're talking about? So I would say the majority of patients have a, a viral illness or, or a, an infection that just requires our evaluation and our assessment there at the bedside. I would say the most common testing that we look for would be things like a urine infection. So checking the urine for signs of, of infection or, or cells that are fighting infection, doing that throat swab, like I mentioned, or doing a chest x-ray. I think those are probably the most common tests that we do when we're concerned that it is an infection that requires antibiotics. Mm. Now, Dr. Whitley Williams, I have heard that Dr. Lucky has said that the fever is changing our thermostat. So what is actually happening in our body when we get a fever? The fever in itself is a sign that there is something irritating the body, right? It could be an illness or it could be an infection. Not always is there an infection going on. What happens is the fever is actually a signaling that the body is responding to what's irritating it or it's responding to an infection. So it's important to realize that the fever is just like the door opening and for us to look in and see what might be causing it. Our body makes 
proteins or chemicals, I'll call them, in the blood and throughout the body. And so when there's an infection or an illness, the body releases these what we call inflammatory chemicals or inflammatory proteins. And what that does is it triggers or it sets off the immune system. The other thing I should say is in response to these inflammatory proteins being released, that causes the body temperature to go up. So it's a natural response of our body's defenses and immune system in response to an infection. So isn't that great? Because what the body does, it's responding. That's part of the body's defense to fight off a viral infection or a bacterial infection. So that's really what a fever is. Would you be more worried if someone who was sick did not have a fever? Well, sometimes it, not that commonly, maybe more so in the younger children, but sometimes in response, the body's temperature can get very low. And this occurs usually if a child is critically or severely ill from an infection. So basically what you're saying is when the body has had enough from an infection and cannot function as it normally does, it no longer has the capacity to generate that fever because it's too sick to even create a fever. Correct. Especially when the temperature is very low. We call that hypothermic. So then Dr. Lahey, I'm going to toss this back to you. If it's a natural response and this is nature's way of doing things, why do we advise giving a type of medicine we call antipyretics, which are Tylenol, Motrin, acetaminophen is another name for Tylenol, these medicines that lower fevers. If it's not dangerous and it's nature's way of doing things, why do we do that? I think the biggest reason we use these kind of medications is more about comfort. When you have a high fever, the discomfort that causes is going to make a child less likely to eat, less likely to drink, and at a higher risk for becoming dehydrated. There's a thing that we call insensible fluid losses. And these mean fluids that are coming out of the body other than when you're peeing them out, right? So when you're breathing, fluid's coming out of your mouth. And when you're sweating, that's fluid coming out of your body. And when you have a fever, you breathe faster and you sweat more. And if you're doing that and not drinking, then you're at a high risk for becoming dehydrated. And when you're becoming dehydrated, you feel very bad and now you drink less. And so that can be a dangerous spiral. And that's the main reason that I like to recommend to parents that they should use Tylenol or Motrin more for comfort, right? I'm not using it because I want the temperature to be below 100.6. If, if a child's 101 and looking well and eating and drinking, they don't have to have Tylenol or Motrin. Mm. And sometimes I think that we worsen the misconception that we have to bring temperatures down. When I see a patient in the emergency department who has a fever, they're going to look worn out or tired and they're going to have a higher heart rate. What I'm trying to do as part of my assessment is to give them an antipyretic, like you said. So give them ibuprofen, which is Motrin, or acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, bring that temperature down and see that their heart rate improves and that they look better. And those things help to reassure me that I don't need to do other testing. And that's one of the main reasons I do it. But if I do it on every person that comes in with fevers, it looks like I am worried about fevers. And it's not the reason I'm using it. 
So I've had this experience before too, where I'm treating a patient with a fever from a urinary tract infection or from an ear infection or something like that. And I give some medicine to help them feel more comfortable. And I think it's time for them to go home and the family will come to me and say, but the fever hasn't gone away. They still have a 102. And actually it's okay. It's okay that they have a 102. That's fine. It's just to keep them comfortable. What about when we have a kid that comes through the emergency department where the complaint is, well, the fever came back. What do you tell a parent when you, when they say, you sent me home or my doctor saw me earlier today and I started antibiotics, even if they're on antibiotics, I started antibiotics and the fever went down after that first dose of Motrin, but then it came back. What does that mean? Does that mean the kid's still sick? Did we choose the wrong antibiotic? I think that's an excellent question. And I think going off of what Dr. Whitley Williams said about how you're having these fevers because your immune system knows that something's there, that it's trying to fight that. And fever is an indicator that it's still fighting. The Tylenol and Motrin are a way for us to lower the thermostat, but it's only set on a timer of four to six hours. And then it's going to shoot back to wherever the body wants it to be. So if the body was producing fevers and they were 103 or 104, and we give Tylenol or Motrin and we bring it down, uh, once that wears off, it's going to shoot back up to whatever the thermostat's set to. And it's just a, an indication that the body is still fighting something. And it's not a failure of the therapy. It's just, you know, it's the limitation of how Tylenol and Motrin works. It's not fixing the problem. It's just helping for a little bit. Okay. So it sounds like we're just pushing it down mm -hmm. for a brief period of time. And once we take our hand off of it, then it just comes right back. Not that I haven't had that discussion a million <laughs> times before. Yeah, so, and remember, viruses and bacteria don't like to grow at very high temperatures. Is that why we get fevers? Yes, that's indeed. It's, as I said, it's part of the body's defenses. So bacteria and viruses do not like to grow above 38 degrees centigrade or 100.6 <laughs> Fahrenheit. So just keep that in mind. But if the child is feeling uncomfortable, like Dr. Lucky said, then you do want to give an antipyretic, so they'll feel more comfortable. They'll be able to drink more, maybe eat more, be more active. Dr. Whitley-Williams, why doesn't every child who comes in with a fever need antibiotics? Most of the infections in children are viral. And we've heard James say that before. They are mostly viral infections, so they do not need antibiotics. Remember, we already overuse antibiotics. Really? We prescribe too many antibiotics. And most of these infections, at least in children, are viral. So we have to keep that in mind because the downside is that bacteria are very smart and they figure out how to develop resistance to antibiotics that we would normally use to treat ear infections, sore throats, other types of infections that we see in children. So the more the bacteria see an antibiotic over and over again, they figure out how to change themselves so they become resistant. And we know this is a big problem in the United States, not just in children, but also in adults, that we are seeing emerging resistance. And it is directly tied to the overuse of antibiotics. So then why don't we just stop 
over-prescribing. What's the problem? Why don't doctors just simply say, okay, well, I don't think you need antibiotics. I'm not going to give you antibiotics. We're using too much antibiotics. We've known this for some time. So, so what's the barrier? Some of it is parental pressure. Really? <laughs> yes. Some of it is definitely parental pressure. But I think it's also why it's important to have a good relationship with your pediatrician. So oftentimes parents will have spoken with their pediatrician who then may refer the child to the emergency room so that emergency room pediatricians like Dr. Lucky can evaluate and examine the child. And based on what is found on the physical examination and speaking uh, with the parents, they can be reassured that this is mostly, most likely a viral infection. And the child can go home with, obviously, management of the fever and drinking plenty of fluids, if, as we have discussed before. Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a little break for a moment. And when we come back, we'll resume our conversation with Dr. James Lucky and Dr. Patricia Whitley-Williams about fever and more to come. Okay, and we're back. So I want to pick back up with uh, a walkthrough. Dr. Lucky, can you tell me what happens? Let's say I have my child, they've got a 103, they've got a cough, they're not feeling well, they're not eating great, and I bring them to the emergency department. I hit the front door. What happens in the emergency department to my child? So I think this is a great question because it's a very complicated system and there's a lot going on in the background that, that you don't see and that you don't appreciate is happening. And so I think the, the very first thing that's going to happen is you're going to give your information to the front desk so that they know that you're there to be seen, informing the team that someone's here to be evaluated. The next person that's going to evaluate you is a nurse that's going to be doing what's called a triage system. And now what triage means is you're trying to do an initial evaluation or to check somebody to try and figure out any red flags that may indicate that they are very sick or very ill. And we ultimately end up designating each person uh, a triage level. So what the leveling does is it helps you to know who needs to be seen right away and who can wait a little bit. And it can be frustrating. You're sitting there in the waiting room and you've been seen by the nurse and there are other people coming in after you and they seem to go in before you. And a lot of the times it's because that person, once they were seen, the triage determined that there was something that told the team that they need to be seen right away. If your child is having a cold or a viral illness, but their blood pressure and their heart rate look okay, maybe they do look a little dehydrated, but they're still acting okay. And then someone else comes in and they look very seriously dehydrated. They are going to be pulled in to the emergency department first. Excellent. We're going to actually tackle this subject in depth of, of triage in an upcoming episode. But what you're basically saying is a child who is having a seizure, is probably going to be seen before a child who is sick appearing, but has a fever and has a normal vital signs for all intents and purposes. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> exactly. So that process is the very first step. And then once you've been triaged, then there's a room available for you or a spot in the emergency department where uh, a provider will see you. Then you go through to that location 
And then either a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant or the doctor will see you do their evaluation and determine if you do need any other workup, if you need treatments or therapies or anything like that. And after which we'll determine, does this require more testing or can you go home and follow up with your primary care doctor? Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Okay. Dr. Whitley Williams, I hear all the time people come in and they tell me, my doctor told me to come in to get a viral test, a test that's recently been developed. It's actually changed in the field, I feel lately, where there could be 13, 14 or more different types of viruses that we can get on this test. Yet I know in my department, we don't do it commonly. From an infectious disease standpoint, what is the use of these tests and when really should we be using them? Thank you. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think you're referring to what we would call the respiratory viral panel or yes. respiratory viral test. So years ago, we could not distinguish which viruses might have been causing a fever or illness. And what has happened with wonderful technology is we now have a test that can be run on a, nose sw a nasal swab where um, we are able to test for up to maybe 15, 20 different viruses. Now, not every child, in fact, most children who are relatively well, stable vital signs, as we were just discussing, who come in to the emergency room do not need a viral respiratory panel. If we are in the middle of an epidemic, such as the recent epidemic with COVID. I've heard of it. Yes. Well, that's good. <laughs> I know it well, being an infectious disease consultant. But anyway, certainly we were doing COVID testing, which was a form of a PCR in the emergency room. So there it can be very helpful. So it's not that expanded panel. However, in the emergency room, if the child looks relatively well, you really don't need to do this respiratory viral panel. It comes into play if a child has respiratory symptoms or you think they have a pneumonia and they're sick enough to be admitted. So then the it might be helpful. And remember, in flu season, yes, we like to know because we can treat with Tamiflu. We do have antibiotics against flu. And of course, we have them against COVID. But in general, usually we do not have to do the respiratory viral panel on any child that comes in with fever. In fact, these tests are probably overused. Much like our antibiotics. Yes. <laughs> so if I might summarize, it sounds like what you're saying is that in some cases it is important, but for the most part, it doesn't really matter which virus they have because they're Correct. probably going to get better from it anyway. And in other times, if it's uh, flu season and the child looks like they have the flu, for the most part, we'll treat them like they have the flu, which I believe is now one of the AAP recommendations is that we don't need to get the tests to, to give Correct. Flu. Absolutely. Uh, can can right. you talk about that, please? Sure. If there are particular symptoms that we see with flu in children, and certainly maybe similar findings in adults, fever, sometimes there are vomiting and diarrhea, body aches, if the child is old enough to tell you that, fatigue, and of course, decreased eating and drinking, and the high fevers. Hmm. So, and particularly if we're in flu season, it's going around. So you don't even have to do that at that point. Dr. Lucky, how long is too long? 
to have a fever. Ones that go on for long periods of time. I often get families that come into me and say, I had this fever for a week or I started having a fever a week ago. It went away for a day or two and now it's come back. So how long is too long and, and how does that change what you look at? Yeah, Rich, I think that's an excellent question. When it comes to my perspective in the emergency department, my goal is always to try and look for things that are dangerous, things that need treatments, antibiotics, or conditions that require admission to the hospital. And when I'm seeing a child that's had a fever, the first thing I'm trying to understand is exactly how many days they've been having the fever. Because sometimes it may be that they've had a fever for two weeks, but it's a couple days throughout those two weeks or that it was for a few days, then it went away and it came back. And so sorting that out is different than finding out that it's actually been a fever every day for two weeks. The way that I like to counsel my families, I say, if it's going on for five or more days, I do want you to get reseen by somebody, either your primary care doctor or coming back to us if you have to. If it's a child that started off with a fever, was being seen and now is visiting me again in that five to seven day range, then I'm doing my assessment. I'm looking for any of those red flag symptoms. And then from that point on, I'm usually recommending rechecking every few days with a provider. So whether it's just a phone call to your doctor to say how things are going or if new symptoms are showing up, or if, it's, if your provider can't follow up with you in that way, then coming back to us or going to an urgent care so that somebody can look for those red flags, those dangerous signs of requiring more treatment, more therapy, or starting an antibiotic. Just basically keep on checking on them, see if they develop the signs that would change the way that we think. Yeah. Yeah. So, and when new stuff are, is, is shown up, things that I consider concerning are having trouble breathing, looking dehydrated, so not being able to pee in, in more than six hours or... Another dehydration symptom might be sunken eyes or the activity level is just really low. Now, when it comes to length of fever, a lot of times I will have a, a physician, a primary care doctor, send a kid into me who has had fever for greater than five days for concern for something very specific. And I'm going to toss this to you, Dr. Whitley Williams. What is Kawasaki disease? Parents come in and they say, my doctor told me about the motorcycle thing or about some, some disease that of lasting too long and this is what I'm terrified of. So what is that and how would I, as an emergency room doctor, be able to distinguish this from an average common illness? Yeah, so it's interesting that you brought that up. So Kawasaki's disease is a, an inflammatory disease. We do not know what causes it. We do not know if it's a, caused by a virus or a bacteria or if it's the body's response in, uh, as a result of exposure to something in the environment. But we do have set criteria that we use to make that diagnosis. Sometimes it's not that easy. But the symptoms are usually you have to have fever for at least five days. Also changes in the eyes. The eyes are usually red. You also will see red lips, and oftentimes the lips are cracked. The tongue is red, and you may see some bumps on the tongue as well. 
Sometimes it looks like they have a red throat, almost as if they have a strep throat, but you culture for strep and it's negative. They also have swollen glands, which are, feel like bumps in the neck. And those are just how the body reacts to having a sore throat or having some changes inside the mouth. And also they have swelling of the hands and feet, particularly the palms and soles, which usually are very red. So you have to have at least five of the six criteria, yeah, five of the six criteria to meet the definition of Kawasaki's disease. But then we have atypical Kawasaki's disease. So not every child meets five of the six. So it gets to be very difficult to diagnose. And that sounds right? very tricky. And you can't, like, you, it could you really be, can't it tell. It couldn't be, it might be. It this. could be strep. It could be a drug reaction. So it's very difficult. And I think this is where sometimes Dr. Lucky and the pediatric ER physicians will call for a pediatric infectious disease consultation, just so we can put our heads together and try to figure out, is this a true Kawasaki's disease or not? So that actually brings up another question I was going to ask you, which is, I'm calling you at three in the morning. Dr. Lucky is calling you at three in the morning. What is the average reason why an emergency department would contact an infectious disease doctor at three in the morning? So either the child is critically ill and the doctor is asking for our input or advice regarding selection of the most appropriate antibiotics to treat a certain condition. Or secondly, it may be to ask us what we think is the most likely diagnosis or what would we consider in the differential. And now what's helpful, of course, with the electronic record, one can take pictures of the, a rash, which is one of the more common reasons that we get consulted as well, and actually put it on our electronic record, which we then can access from home. That is if I can wake up <laughs> and <laughs> log on. <laughs> I'm sorry to call you at three in the morning. It happens. And, and, and no problem. We work together as a team, and obviously we're willing to help. Along these lines, Kawasaki disease and these critically ill children are not the only zebras that we see that can cause fevers. Often there are some strange illnesses that are not the average case. When a patient gets admitted to the hospital with a strange prolonged fever, sometimes these are called fevers of unknown origin. Can you briefly describe some of these weird cases and what might cause them these weird fevers that just don't match anything else that we see? So it's interesting. And usually if we say fever of unknown origin, we usually like to give the fever at least two weeks, mm -hmm. right, of duration, fever of unknown origin. Um, and that means you couldn't find an ear infection. There was not a sore throat. There's no appendicitis. Check the urine. There's not a urinary tract infection. So again, and that patient probably has been reevaluated over and over again. So at that point, we usually get involved to say, what's the most likely diagnosis? We also try to take a thorough exposure history. Have they traveled? What kind of pets do they have at home? Have they recently visited a farm? Have they had a tick bite recently? Is anybody sick at home? Hmm. Do they go to daycare? Hmm. Are they school age? So there are a number of infectious disease focused questions that we review with those parents and with the child if they're old enough to try to figure out where this fever is coming from. Rash, it's important to ask about joint symptoms. By the way, you can also see rash and joint pains 
in children with Kawasaki's. So it's really, this is what I love about infectious diseases because we become like detectives. No one else has figured this out and it's a child with fever for two weeks. So we love those types of cases and we try to figure out what is exactly wrong. And it's not always a bad diagnosis. Sometimes it is viral in the end. Sometimes we never find the exact diagnosis, but the child gets better. So I think that those are challenges, but that's what we mean by fever of unknown origin. We do not know the source of the fever, but they love to call infectious diseases. <laughs> now, they're not all infections. Some are could be juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. It could be non-infectious. Mm. Right? could be drug fever. So we say, what medications are they on? There are other things that can cause fevers other than infections. And what are some infections that you found that, that are interesting that bring a child in for FUO? Oh, typhoid fever. Yeah. There's a travel history. Mm-hmm. Kawasaki's, of course, is always in there. Tuberculosis is something we have to think about. Malaria, again, travel history. But you see, most of these children eventually will have symptoms other than fever. But again, it's, it's taking that detailed history. They could have drug fever. Like I said, sometimes they'll have juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. There are other autoimmune diseases, which a child can experience as well. Dr. Lucky, we sometimes see children that uh, come into the emergency department unvaccinated. Now, obviously, sitting here, you and I with an infectious disease uh, professional, we have an obvious uh, bias where we prefer vaccinations. Um, But we also try not to judge. And I I try not to judge any families who make that decision to not uh, vaccinate their children. However, how does that change your evaluation of a child in the emergency department? Like there are certain things that we must do for children who are unvaccinated as opposed to children who are vaccinated. So I agree, Rich. It's one of those situations where it, it is a family's decision. And they're totally allowed to make that decision. It does change how I am going to approach my evaluation or my workup for a patient who has fever. When I see a child that hasn't received vaccines for whatever reason, sometimes it's that the vaccines are being delayed because every time they go to the pediatrician, they're sick and they're pushing it off till the next visit. And sometimes it's a parental choice. And that's fine. It's just going to mean that I need to probably do more testing. So it's going to be more of a workup. It'll likely mean I'm going to do blood testing to look at the body's immune system response because fever is only part of that response. The blood cells fighting the infection are another part of that response. And there are some other um, tests that we can do with the blood to look at how much inflammation or indicators of inflammation within the bloodstream. Mm. Usually it's going to be more of a workup. It's going to be the same evaluation, doing a history, doing a physical, but I'm going to have a lower threshold for going towards blood work and urine testing and other things like that. Mm. Dr. Whitley-Williams, same question, or if you want to reflect on Dr. Lucky's answer, how does being unvaccinated change uh, the workup, both in the emergency department and for pediatricians out there? I, I would agree. We respect the parents' decision regarding vaccination. It is important to realize that immunizations have been a success story in terms of when I trained. We saw H flu B meningitis all the time, and today we don't see it. 
because so much of the population is vaccinated. But it does change my way of thinking and in terms of deciding the differential, especially if a child who I think has an invasive bacteria in their bloodstream or has meningitis, has bacteria in their brain. It changes my thinking because if they're unvaccinated, then I have to consider other bacteria against which they usually would have been protected had they been vaccinated. So it does change our approach. But the initial treatment is probably still the same because we're going to cover for every possible bacterial agent in terms of treating a child who has bacteria in the blood or has meningitis. Dr. Lucky, do you have any questions as an emergency physician for your infectious disease consultant? Rich, I think from an emergency department standpoint, we, we see a lot of patients and, and tell them to follow up with their pediatrician. Uh, what are times that you think it's probably better for me to tell them to follow up with you as the next step and not the pediatrician? Certainly. I think if there are abnormal tests that you discover during the emergency room visit, then that definitely would be an appropriate referral to the Pediatric Infectious Disease Office or clinic. There are certain diseases, though, that we would want to follow up on, certainly sexually transmitted infections that you may see in the adolescents. Uh, we should certainly follow up on those. Any kind of um, H uh, HIV or hepatitis exposure where you do the initial testing um, we definitely want to follow up on those patients because we repeat some of those blood tests to make sure they have not become infected because it may not show up in the initial visit. And then if you, I think if your judgment tells you that this may be an ongoing or recurrent infectious disease, then you certainly should refer them to us. For example, someone with recurring cold sores on their lips, which is most likely herpes. Someone who keeps getting um, what we call boils or skin abscesses, which are typically caused by MRSA, which is uh, community-acquired, and it's a form of a bacterial skin infection called Staph aureus. So to try to prevent that from recurring, that would certainly be an appropriate referral. There may be a patient who has recurring, let's say, ear infections, and you might wonder whether they have an immune deficiency problem or a weak body defense or weak immune system, that would be another appropriate referral. So any of those types of things, we're more than happy to, to follow up in the outpatient. And okay. if you're not sure, then you just give us a call and say, do you want, do you think this is a patient that you should follow? And we'll be happy to discuss those cases with you. Dr. Whitley-Williams, if you were to talk to a parent right now and say, there's only one thing I want you to understand about fever. It's this. And Dr. Lucky, I'm going to be asking you the same question in just a second. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Whitley-Williams, as an infectious disease professional, someone who deals with fever as a living, what would you want a parent to know? I would say to parents that most fevers are due to viral infections. So don't panic. If in question, call your pediatrician. If the child is not acting normally and you can't get a hold of your pediatrician, by all means, bring them to the emergency room. But the most important thing I would say is remember that most fevers are due to viruses. Dr. Lucky, same question. So my biggest thing that I like to counsel about, and this is more specific to, to febrile seizures, 
is that you missing a dose of Tylenol or Motrin or any antipyretic is not the reason that a child has had a febrile seizure. So it's not your fault. I think that's the biggest concern from a lot of the parents that I talk to is that they're worried that the fever being 104 means that their child's at a higher risk of having a febrile seizure or some sort of brain injury or damage. And that's not the case. And studies have shown us that it's not how high the fever is that causes febrile seizures. But once it's happened and a child has come to see me, I always want to reassure the family that it's not because you didn't give Tylenol that the child had a, a febrile seizure and it's, and it's not your fault. And that's one of those big things that I come to a lot and I think is really important to know. That's fantastic because one of our upcoming episodes is actually going to be on febrile seizures. So it's something to look forward to for our audience. If I were to give, as a pediatric emergency medicine physician myself, advice to family members or the one thing that I would want them to know, it's that it's okay to take a second and take a look at how your child looks. Most of the time, uh, if you give some antipyretic medication at home, some Tylenol, some Motrin, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, Advil, these are all different names of medications that do the same thing, you can see that your child will get better. And you can then judge whether or not you need an emergency department visit or whether or not you can see your pediatrician the following day. The other thing I always want my families to know, and this is something that not everybody knows, is that it's okay to give Tylenol and ibuprofen together or acetaminophen and ibuprofen together. These two medicines work synergistically in a way that actually helps keep fevers down for longer, keeps fevers down in a way that keeps these patients more comfortable. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And remember to keep them hydrated, right? Hydration. Keep, get, get fluids in. Absolutely. It's a big thing. Yeah, definitely Tylenol and Motrin. They can be given at the same time. I find it starts becoming complicated when you have multiple care providers. And so keeping a log or a, a central way of tracking when the last Tylenol or Motrin dose was given, because each of them should be given six hours apart from themselves, right? So Tylenol, and then six hours later, the next dose of Tylenol. But if the fever spikes up an hour later, you can give that dose of Motrin. But you have to wait six hours from that dose of Motrin for the next dose of Motrin. Mm. And so having a way of keeping track of that is really important. Because I know my wife and I will get confused about who gave the last dose of Tylenol or Motrin to our children. And I think having a way of keeping track of it is, is really important. That's great advice. Dr. Lucky, I want to go back to something that you had just mentioned about febrile seizures. Fever seizures are totally one of those things that we have a lot of anxiety about. But there's also something that looks like a fever seizure, like a febrile seizure, and is a very common complaint that comes into the ED. I know what where is, you're going. Yeah, you know where I'm going. We get questions about it all the time. <laughs> what, what, what are rigors? So I think when Dr. Whitley Williams was talking earlier about how the body's fever, you bundle somebody up and because they feel cold and they're getting really hot. Well, during that time when their body's creating this fever, you get rigors, which is the muscles tremoring. Because muscle movement and muscle energy usage creates heat. And so the body is resetting the thermostat, it's setting it higher, and now the body's gotta get that temperature higher. So 
the fastest way to do that is to create heat through muscle movement. So the muscles are going to tremor. And that's what we call rigors. It's tremoring, but the child is actually still awake or alert, unlike a seizure where your body is having these spasms or very rhythmic jerking and you're not alert. You cannot respond to somebody saying your name or tapping you on the shoulder or the chest. And I think that's the biggest difference between the two. And it's very easy to confuse, that's for sure. I've seen providers even confuse the difference. And that's because these look very similar. With Rigers, usually families say the baby was shaking, the mm -hmm. child was shaking. And my question usually to follow up is, well, were they looking at you? Were they talking to you? Were they complaining with you? Were they crying? Yeah. Because babies who are having a seizure can't do those things. And babies who are having Rigers, they look miserable, they feel miserable, and they do have shakes. But you can either break them or they're, they're able to tell you that they want an ice pop or, or something along those lines. Is that about right? That's exactly right. And that was the end of my conversation with Drs. James Lucky and Patricia Whitley-Williams. I want to thank both of them for joining me on our inaugural episode. Like I said at the top of the show, we will be doing a future episode on fever in a neonate, which is a baby under the age of 90 days. Our next episode will feature my talk with Dr. Mintu Do and Dr. Karishma Parikh about head injuries and concussions. In the meantime, give us some feedback and tell us if you like the show. Visit us at www.peptalkpodcast.net. There you will find a link to email us about what you liked or didn't like. Also, feel free to send us a topic that you would like to hear on Pep Talk. You can send us your questions on this episode, and we might answer it on the air with some listener mail. So to wrap things up, let me say that I'm Rich Brodsky, and I'll see you next time when we address more questions for people who care for children. One pep talk at a time. <laughs>